there's never been, at least in my recollection, more bipartisan support for addressing the housing affordability crisis than there is right now. A big part of our affordability uh, housing crisis problem is also that Nashville has not made the necessary investments in our infrastructure and in our neighborhoods that we should have been over the 25 or so years that as our city has grown. We focused a lot on downtown and tourism and big business, but did not put enough focus and, and investment in our neighborhoods and our infrastructures and transit. Let's be clear about that as well. In order to support the type of growth that we need in those neighborhoods, it's like putting the cart before the horse. When you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, you have to do something. Welcome to PBN. My name is Braden Gall. You can follow me on Twitter or Blue Sky at Braden Gall. The social media maven, Braden Gall. I'm Jamie Holland. Don't follow me on X. Why do you ask people not to follow you if that's the only place you're out posting? Right here, because I want them to come to PBN, Braden. Well, if they want the full-throated Jamie Holland, and they give come give a here. rating. Well, okay, tell everybody about that, too. Yeah, they got to scroll down, all the way down. We're, down. we're up to 27 episodes. This will be episode 28, and we're on the cusp of breaking triple-digit ratings. Which is twice as many as the other guys. And if you don't give five stars, <laughs> you are a hater. And nobody cares about haters. I am normally we would tell people what's coming up on the show first before we beg them for a rating, but we'll just get it out of the way now. Uh, Jennifer Gamble, council member, district number three, second term, and is Jamie. Let me make sure I get this right. The chair of the planning and zoning commission. No, no committee. That's right, committee. And then they are the voice on the commission. Correct. Correct. All right. See, I'm learning something from They're the council's representative there we go. on the planning commission. We are going to talk housing, Jamie's favorite subject today on the show with Jennifer Gamble, of course. We're going to talk about what her, how she views that role. We're going to look at what exactly are some solutions around housing moving forward with this brand new Metro Council. We'll do that. We've got some news and notes to get to, of course. I have a pet project I want to present to you, Jamie. We've got a person who's thrown her name into the hat, potentially. It's possible to run for a U.S. House of Representatives seat, District Number 7. Uh, former Mayor Megan Barry, of course, we'll get to that. More importantly, what would it take, what type of candidate and what type of campaign would you have to run if you wanted to unseat a Republican in either the 5th, 6th, or 7th districts, the three districts that, of course, were chopped up Nashville when they re redistrict after the, after the census. So we'll get into that. Uh, Metro Legal won another lawsuit, of course, and then there's a U.S. Supreme Court case uh, appeal that's taking place on gender affirming care. So a lot of little things to get to before we get to Jennifer Gamble. Please rate, review, and subscribe, as Jamie already alluded to. But I just thought I'd, I'd set you up here because a lot of our conversation with Jennifer is going to be around housing. I'm not sure I've seen you this excited and this happy about all the different news stories that are out there about housing in Nashville right now. Are, are, how excited are you to see all this stuff and to talk to Jennifer about what could be happening in our great city as it pertains to the housing crisis? We need to keep flooding the zone. Stephen, number two in the National Post, 
wrote an article for the latest edition of the National Post magazine. They call it the Boom Edition. It's titled, What's the Argument for Rewriting Nashville's Zoning Code? But more importantly, there's never been, at least in my recollection, more bipartisan support for addressing the housing affordability crisis than there is right now. It starts with the president of the United States, Joe Biden, and his administration on the local level, the Beacon Center. And as I read the other day in the Tennessee Lookout, the comptroller, the treasury, Jason Mumpower, says there's 83,000 people moving into the state last year, the seventh highest nationally. The state is suffering from a housing shortage, which is driving up real estate prices. So that he's, he's pointing to the, the population growth. And I think a lot of people point to the population growth. And I think that's obviously a big, big cause. I do want to ask you quickly one note, um, which is sort of corporate investors coming in, which according to Axios recently is about 25% of all home purchases in, in Nashville. How much of a force is that? And is that even a thing that we can worry ourselves about? Or is that just a larger outside market force that can't be dealt with? Well, I don't know if you can, you can't stop it for sure. However, you can render it less of a percentage of housing purchases by building more <laughs> fucking housing. Braden, don't know if you know this or not, but we have not only policy considerations to change, but also at the permitting level, we got to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. And that means reforming the stormwater grading permit process. If I didn't know better, I think it would be reasonable to conclude that the banks run the fucking Metro water department. Yeah, sounds pretty fucking dumb. You're thinking, well, the stormwater grading permit approval process costs owners millions of dollars per month and carry interest because they can't approve a goddamn stormwater grading permit. Get the fuck out of here. So in our conversation with council member district three, Jennifer Gamble, uh, there's a few nuggets in there about some solutions that I think we all kind of agree with. So we'll, I think you should stay tuned and you should listen to our conversation with Jennifer Gamble. Some folks might be happy. I think some folks, you, you're smiling right now. And that's, that only happens when Will Levis throws touchdown passes. So uh, I have, I'm going to add a pet issue because the first time. No, I'd rather kick a field goal at the end of the half. I don't, I don't, I won't even want to try to throw it in the end zone. I'm going to set up that field goal (laughs) to Mr. Folk who doesn't fucking miss Mr. Automatic. It was the right decision. Um, so, since the first episode of this show, housing has been something you have been campaigning for as a crisis. I think transportation transit is packaged with that as a problem in the city. If you want density, you need transit, but you kind of need the density before the transit to make the transit work, right? So I'm going to add my, this This is now my campaign for the next, let's call it 12 months. Hold on, because Forbes... Has <laughs> I'm gonna get there. I'm notified get there. Don't the steal world. My shit. Don't steal my shit. <laughs> we are national champions. We are number one, folks. We are number one in America. In America. 
Forbes Home reported this week, number one in America, 41 hours. The average Nashvilleian. We are the worst city in the country, or best, depending on how you look at it, at, at commutes. The amount of commute time you spend in congestion, in traffic, 41 hours a year. And you know what I, th- what I, when I saw that, Jamie, the first thought I th- thought was like, that number's way too low. <laughs> like, I spent 41 hours last week in traffic. What the fuck are you talking about? So Forbes ranks us number one worst commuting city in the country. So I am now adding because I, I only, the only way I think a dedicated transit referendum would pass is during a presidential election because turnout is so much higher. You get the deal. We need a dedicated transit referendum on the ballot in November of 2024, and I'm starting that conversation today. The way you talk about housing is how I'm going to talk about transit from now on. I'm all for it. Are you with me? I'm all for it, and absolutely, it has to be in the highest turnout election possible. Yes. Putting it 2018 on the lowest turnout election possible was fatal. (laughs) Yes, yes, it was. Roughly, what, 300,000 votes? I think, or was it 400,000 votes, I think, in Davidson County in the 2020 presidential election? I think 100,000 people voted for Trump. I think 300,000 went for Biden, I believe. Don't quote me on that, but I think that's the number. So that's 4X what a mayoral election was. And you may even have a third candidate to vote for. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. Although that he's going to lose money now that now that he's going to lose money from the people that are funding him now that all the people that are funding him are realizing that Kennedy, he's going to take all the votes from Trump instead of Biden. So now they're going to stop funding him. So I don't know if that third candidate's going to last very long. (laughs) So I do appreciate you bringing up the, I think in a recent poll, he had 22% of the vote, which I think is absurd. So it's, we all know it's going to happen in the presidential election in 2024. I want to add transit dedicated funding referendum 2024. Let's do it. Yep. All right. You're with me. Speaking of, (laughs) speaking of a failed transit referendum, former mayor Megan Barry has I guess she told the National Banner that she's considering a run in the 7th District, the U.S. House District, that Mark Green won over Odessa Kelly uh, two years ago. Uh, 60 to 38, I believe, was the total vote share there. Uh, That's a 22-point win for Mark Green. He spent $1.7 million. Odessa Kelly spent about a million dollars. Trump hit that, hit a 56% mark in that district. And what it raises for me, and I've talked to some folks who've considered running in some other districts, the 5th, the 6th, and the 7th, there's no shortage of people in politics that are considering to run <laughs> for office, right? So the fifth district, Andy Ogles, R plus nine. The sixth district, John Rose, uh, R plus seventeen. That's maybe a seventy thirty district potentially, Republican Democrat. And then of course Mark Green is an R plus ten district. Seventh district there is the one that Megan Barry is considering running for. My question to you is what type of candidate because we've talked about candidates going after Andy Ogle's seat through the whole special session what type of person could win that kind of election and the hollowing out of our politics leading to extreme you know extreme candidates primarying people from either side what if we're going to try to convince folks that we're far more alike than we are on the internet (laughs) What type of person and what type of campaign could you run to actually win one of those three seats back to represent Nashville versus the rural counties that they were gerrymandered into? I fully expect amongst those congressional districts, I fully expect Congressman Ogles 
the esteemed economist <laughs> to face the nobody. Pro- nobody cares what's on your diploma. Nobody to, cares to face an opponent in his own primary. Okay, I think he might have trouble getting reelected and even making it to the general. But the uh, the failed Odessa Kelly campaign proved that a far left is not going to win being Nashville centric. They're going to have to go down to Williamson County, Murray County, Lawrence County. I'm not look. I'm not looking at the map here, but I think I've got most of them, maybe even some of Cheatham County. And they're going to need to be at football games on Friday nights, Bar- barbecues on Saturday. You know, I, yep. I would recommend some advocates and I'm not volunteering for this job, Braden. I wouldn't do such a thing. But people that maybe talk like I, me. I'll run your campaign. <laughs> I sure as fuck I'm not going to run. <laughs> people that talk like me with, I, with an accent I'm told by others that I have. I, well, I think it's interesting that if you, and I've said this a lot of times on the show, I think I said it with Ben Eagles in last week's episode. Go check it out. Right, review, subscribe. I, I do believe like deeply that we are all far more alike than we think we are. That we are far more alike than the internet makes us look like makes us out to be. That we all generally, even if the the the, the person says something crazy on, you know, Twitter, that we still care about mostly the same things in our lives. That we st- we care about good jobs. We care about taking care of our kids. We want a house. We want to put food on the table. Like we care about the same things, generally speaking. I, I think there's some powerful forces in this country and in our communities that want us to think that these culture war bullshit garbage propaganda nonsense is what's real and it's not. And I think we're all more alike than that. So I, I don't, there has to be like, so Raphael Warnock ran a campaign in Georgia that I think is interesting. He, he won a lot of rural voters by going out into those counties and winning. Now it's a statewide race. That's different, but he, he, I see that I'm going to, I hear you. All right. All right. The, the reason why we're electing extremists is because of gerrymander. The, the people that are drawing the lines are picking voters, and so the voters picking candidates to elect. And so that, that's an apples and pandas comparison. <laughs> Fair enough. I guess what I'm thinking is the style of the approach, which is I, I'm, I'm going to go where you are, which is what you're talking about. Go on Friday nights to football games and go to barbecues and ha- you know talk to the people where they are, because I think if you do – you would probably learn that you're just not all that different. Like, sure, you might disagree on what the corporate fucking tax rate should be. But at the end of the day, you kind of, you probably agree on most things. And I think to your point all the time about the hollowing out of our politics and is this the most liberal Metro Council we're ever going to have or most progressive or whatever, uh, like the Afton Bain, Anthony Davis race in in the state house, like they're not going to vote any differently than each other. And so I, I, just I don't think we're that different, and maybe that's the I'm I'm interested to see what Megan Berry does. It does she, if she does decide to run in that kind of a race. I don't know if Gloria Johnson has the whole package to to do all the things you need. I mean, obviously that's a a safe U.S. Senate seat for Marsha Blackburn, but I'm just I'm curious with those three particular districts because a big chunk of the voting population in those three districts is going to be in Nashville, so you have a baked in floor. 
The question is, can you go out into those other counties and show people that you're just like them and you care about the same things that they do and that, and, <laughs> and that the people in charge, and here's the most important part, the people in charge don't care about them. They don't care about them. The, the interesting point I'd bring up, that since you mentioned Gloria Johnson, is that there's no prohibition against, under current law, running for the United States Senate and running for re-election to the state house. They're on the same ballot, same time period. Have your name up there twice. You don't have to give up your seat to run for U.S. Senate. You think that's, you're saying that's wrong? I mean, the, the, the way you have to do it to run for mayor. I mean, if you're, you're going to run for the United States Senate, you need to move all your poker chips in. <laughs> okay. All right. I can, uh, I mean, I uh, guess. Yeah. Politicians appearing on a ballot multiple times, like which which one do you want? Well, I guess what I'm getting at is that it takes a lot of different people know this, especially that if you're listening to this show, it takes a lot of different types of 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 political skill to win in districts that are you know plus eight, plus nine, plus ten. You got to be good at the retail politics. You got to be good at the social media. You've got to have great messaging. You need some name ID. Like there's a million different things you need to win those races, but I, but going out and actually talking to people is, you know, when we, when we first started the show, Jamie, that was one of the things about the mayoral race we, we were hearing from people was no, no, somebody knocked on my door. So I, I listened and that's who I voted for. I'm not saying it's not an uphill battle. It's going to happen in 2024 or 2026 or 2028, but I'm thinking 2030 for the U S Senate seat and the U S house seats, it can be done. In particular, if somebody could put together a big old voting turnout machine in the process. Because <laughs> that's also a problem in this state. Worst damn voting turnout in the country. Or, you know, if at age 25 you have a history of, you know, adopting someone that was 11 years your junior, you know, maybe that make you third most powerful man in the country, Braden. Oh, okay. I, I, I was going to save, I was going to save <laughs> Mike Johnson until after our conversation. With the charming and wonderful Jennifer Gamble. Yeah, let's have it. You want to do it now? No, let's have Jennifer Gamble. Okay, all right. Well, quickly, a couple of more notes here, real, real fast. Metro legal. You you used the what, what's the phrase here? The, it's not the the Tennessee Supreme Court, but the court voted three zero, two Republicans and a Democrat to, in in the favor in the favor of Nashville Metro. That's airport a- Airport Authority will go back to the board appointed by the mayor instead of the state, uh, which could have. There's a longer tail effect potentially of this, but that that now means that Wally Dietz at Metro Legal is three and zero, three and zero undefeated against that's the state. Not, that's not fucking true. <laughs> that's not true. Three and zero in the recent term, yes, but the, well, the, well, the council size case will be appealed, and I can actually see, no, no, no. The, see that one. The, the injunction the was granted due to the fact of the timing of it. Right. One thing courts won't get involved in is messing up the timing of any election. So just, that, that's that, just the FBI. That, that's still currently being litigated, and I, I think the state side of that will prevail. But on the airport authority, you know, recently Steve Cavendish, Stephen Number One, posted on X that Bobby Jocelyn and Jimmy Granberry are not going to be allowed on the new board because they served on the new new board. <laughs> okay, you're going to have to see. They, they were on the old board. Correct. Appointed by the mayor. 
they got and there's no council involvement there the mayor no, straight up appoints they, those, those two people got brought on to the new board which is appointed by the state the governor and the speaker of the house and the speaker of the senate but now they're not allowed to go back to the new old board <laughs> <laughs> because according to cavendish because they went and served on the how many meetings did they have on the old new board <laughs> and so Eminent domain, but, eminent domain, Jamie. But eminent domain. But their terms have not expired. They were appointed until 2025. And, it, and as far as I know, they have not resigned. So they're just gonna have the two of them meet somewhere and just <laughs> chat. So I can envision a scenario, Braden, where <laughs> Jimmy and Bobby, which just sounds fucking great, just to say it out loud. <laughs> Jimmy and Bobby show up to the meeting whenever the the old new board let us in <laughs> comes in. What are they gonna do? The, the the old new new old board will not let them in. Like, well, their term hadn't expired. Well, they didn't resign. Uh, I got so I mean, I, it's you know what? There's I'm all, worried about Jimmy and Bobby. What they're gonna do? <laughs> what it brings me to also with all the sports authority. And the airport authority and the metro council size and the fairgrounds, which, by the way, the state is not appealing uh, on the fairgrounds issue. But let, let me say this. Just because the trial court ruled in favor of metro does not mean that's how it's going to end up. Because appellate courts were created because trial courts often get it wrong. Well, And, and if there's one thing I could say about state trial courts compared to federal court is that in state trial courts, politics are greater considerations, and I would submit to you in our federal district courts, at least in Middle Tennessee, politics is not involved. Well, and I think the end of the airport conversation is probably going to be more of a, oh, okay, well, we're not going to target just you, Nashville. We're going to take over all the airports in Tennessee. The, the chairman right? of the Senate Commerce Committee, Paul Bailey, has already said as much. He's going to have a bill next session, at least in the Senate. Finding my house sponsor. Then, all right. Did you know that the Memphis airport is the biggest cargo airport in the world? Like the most active cargo uh, cargo airport in the world? A little company over there called yeah, Federal I'm, Express. I'm, I'm aware. He's, his son is the head coach of the Falcons. That's right. <laughs> Arthur. Former offensive coordinator for North Tennessee Titans. We're going to call it Will Lowe, Billy Jean's best team. And, and to your point earlier, the council has just been put off. It's just been the injunction, I guess, right? Has been, it's just, it's just been deferred to a later time. And because that rule of a maximum of 20 person city councils applies to the entire state, there's a thought that they will, the state will in fact win that case. You and I have talked a lot about how we are going to do an episode <laughs> about the 20 person body. We're not going to bring that up with, with Jennifer today, but we will do, we will do an episode. Maybe we will do an episode. We will do an episode about that because I, I don't. I don't think it's just you and I that are convinced of this. By the way, I think people around the city are maybe thirty-five house, thirty-five council districts. While we have a fucking housing crisis, Brady. zero at large. IDK. Twenty zero at large. Twenty districts. We'll we'll make the case at some point. Uh, quickly here, there was also um, the court case that was back in July, and we did an episode about this. So if you want to go back and get more information, July seventh, I believe, was the episode where we talked about the gender affirming care ruling that Eli Richardson, who was a Trump appointed judge. Um, the quote from him in his ruling that sort of deemed the ban, the, the gender affirming care ban 
unconstitutional in the state of Tennessee, said, quote, the weight of evidence says that gender affirming care has an extraordinarily positive effect on young people. That was then, I, I guess, again, I don't know the legal terminology, but it was appealed and sort of overturned. And now it's being pushed to the U.S. Supreme Court. So the very conservative U.S. Supreme Court is now going to rule on the gender affirming care. And the reason I bring this up is just real, real fast. I want to point this out again. The implications of these bills, because even Eli Richardson noticed and, and pointed out how extraordinarily positive this care is, which, by the way, does not include any surgery. Okay, it's nothing like that. But suicide rates, attempted suicide rates for trans youth, 56% of trans youth have attempted suicide. 18% of LGBT youth have attempted suicide. 9% of cis youth have attempted suicide. Not thought about it, attempted it. Number one, that's a problem for every child in our country from a mental health standpoint. But the implications of this bill and these types of bills that are coordinated all across this country are 56% suicide rate attempts amongst our children. So I just want to point that out, give people some statistical data to use in conversations with people about this particular issue. Well, to the interest of our listeners, our current AG, Skirmetti, his batting average is pretty fucking low right now in winning cases. Just FYI, because those ones you talked about, Metro League winning, well, that was Skirmetti. Against Skirmetti. Skirmetti and this fucking team. Well, let's <laughs> let's hope that continues then, because, again, I think we, we can laugh about the new old boards and the airport authority and the sports authority and the seven votes and the six votes, and we can we can laugh about all that stuff. But we, we are talking this kind of bill, it, it, it is it flies directly in the face of protecting our children. So just want to point that out. Just give those numbers out there. I think it's important to hear. Not, it's not easy to hear, but I think it's important to hear. All right. Now, I don't know how I get to Jennifer Gable out of that well, conversation. Two, two, two more things. All right, go for it. One, uh, Supreme Court's also going to be considering United States versus Rahimini, and that's whether or not that case will decide whether or not domestic violence cases, if you can take away someone's right to own a gun. That's dangerous, but that segue to... Wait, so you're saying the Supreme Court will decide that if you are somehow... Is this essentially a red flag type of thing? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, like if, if you have a domestic violence... You cannot own a gun. Yeah. That'd be, so, that'd be a nice step. I'll take that. But we've seen some news recently on the Safe Bar program. We have. Shout out to former friend of the PBN... Is that how I'm supposed to say it? I don't, I don't know. You've ruined talking. it. Friend of the pod, Emily Benedict. She's PBN. Out there, out there tweeting. She's not a former friend. She's a friend of current, PBN. Current friend? Sorry. Current sorry. Friend. Former, former, you got her conflated with somebody that's definitely former, not a friend. Former, <laughs> former guest, current friend of the pod, Emily PBN. Benedict. Yes. Of PBN. Uh, out there pushing the safe bar program. Tag your favorite bar. My favorite response was, how do I tag every bar on Broadway? And then I wanted to say, not every bar. There's one down there. Whiskey bent, I think. No free shots. Go get yourself some damn coasters. Sign up for the Safe Bar program. Yeah, love seeing that in the news and the engagement of the Women's Caucus. Bingo. Of the Metro Council getting out there and promoting this and getting other bars. If, go to your bar. Ask them if they're part of the Safe Bar program. If not, direct them. Ask them to do so. In our neighborhood, shout out, Lakeside Lounge, Pearl Diver. 
All right, part of the bar, part of the Safe Bar program. If you have a bar that you go to in your neighborhood, go ask them to join the program. It's a very it's a very low uh, bar to clear. Look out for the women that come to your bar. <laughs> Crazy seems, seems, seems like a seems like a smart decision for an establishment. Uh, okay, can we? You, you're good. Yes. Those are two positive developments. I'm glad we ended on a on a positive note. We'll I guess laugh about Mike Johnson after our conversation with council member Jennifer Gamble. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us, coming in studio. We do really appreciate your time. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. I'm a little disappointed on that Titans loss, but hey, we've got a good (laughs) good quarterback prospect, so I'm I'm moving on and ready for the next game. If you're not careful, this will turn into a 45-minute conversation about Mike Vrabel. With Jamie sitting over there, so let's just be careful. Okay. Uh, but you are here because uh, obviously District Three Council Member uh, in your second term and have been elected to the Planning Chair. Like, what what exactly do people need to know about that role? What does that role do? And and just let's just start as broadly as we can. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about uh, this role as Chair of the Planning and Zoning Committee. The Planning and Zoning Committee. Uh, helps drive ordinance and legislation towards uh, zoning uh, and land use uh, for our city. It affects development, it affects housing, it affects transit, it affects uh, jobs, economics. And so it's a pretty important committee on the, uh, the Metro Council. I would venture to say it's one of the, one of the most important, uh, probably behind Budget and Finance Committee, which is the committee that decides the uh, budget for our city and the budget priorities for our city. Jamie said on a previous episode that uh, I have played, you, you've, you've heard, so I want to make sure that we're not, uh, we're all in that transparency here, uh, that there are multiple different tracks that this role can take. W- how do you view the role in terms of what you are trying to accomplish in that role? I see this role as a dual purpose. One is to educate the community first and foremost about uh, our, our zoning laws and how those laws could impact them as residents, as taxpayers. Also uh, seeing it as a role in working with the planning department and the Metro Council and establishing uh, land use policies and zoning laws that uh, enhance our, our growth and development of our city. Our city has grown uh, exponentially, as everyone knows, over the last 20 years. And so uh, it, it, there's a dual role and process where we are educating the community and residents uh, to make informed or to be informed about um, growth and uh, policy decisions that are made affecting their quality of life. And then also working with the planning department and the council to be forward thinking and looking how we may need to make adjustments to laws in order to address um, issues concerning growth and development for our city. I'm going to make a big statement first. In Nashville, through our antiquated zoning code, born January 1, 1998, our rezoning process, which includes two public hearings, one at the Planning Commission, one at the Council, our parking minimums, which, to the credit of the Council, is finally done away with, our 35 council districts, a.k.a. small council districts, a very vocal minority can prevail. The Nashville Next... Lot size minimums and floor area ratio all combined have been an impressive success in making 
Nashville a hub for an affordability crisis? Okay. <laughs> did, what, you get, did you get all that? <laughs> what reforms come to mind in changing that? Because never in my lifetime have I seen more bipartisan support for the what's obviously in front of our face, and that is a housing affordability crisis from President Joe Biden to here locally, the Beacon Center, and even the comptroller of the Treasury, Jason Mumpower, all recognize this fact. What is on your mind relative to reforms in those areas? Well, let me start with adding to your list of, of issues that have led to our affordable housing crisis. I, I'm, I'm originally from Chicago, Illinois. I came here in 1987. I've been here over 35 years. And so I've seen the transition and growth of Nashville during that time. And I would say that a, a big part of our affordability uh, housing crisis problem is also that Nashville has not made the necessary investments in our infrastructure and in our neighborhoods that we should have been over the 25 or so years that as our city has grown uh, rapidly during that time. We, we focused a lot on downtown and tourism and big business, but did not put enough focus and, and investment in our neighborhoods and our infrastructure. So that just compounded uh, those other issues that you, you've talked about. So that's number one. How we address it now, uh, looking at um, zoning codes, uh, changing zoning codes or doing away with zoning codes, I have mixed feelings about that. Um, and I know that there's a lot of support uh, from the federal government, state government, and a lot of cities are doing uh, a lot of, um, trying a lot of new concepts to address uh, that, that issue that you talk about, changing policy to address the affordable housing crisis. I think there is some validity in that. I think you are right. There are some restrictions with our land use policies that um, limit the amount of housing that we can build uh, within our our neighborhoods. But again, and having not invested in the infrastructure and transit, let's be clear about that as well, in order to support the type of growth that we need in those neighborhoods, it's like putting the cart before the horse. And so we need to do that. And then, yes, definitely looking at changing our zoning codes and policies so that we can maximize uh, land use space. We can also um, maximize repurposing um, neglected, unused land or neglected buildings in order to do that as well, particularly on our corridors. I like the concept of uh, compact development, which is um, a concept that is being used in rapidly growing cities like Denver and, and Austin and even around the rural in Thailand, actually, uh, where the, the concept is to do what I just said, repurpose um, vacant buildings, use uh, government land that is being unused, particularly on our corridors to build a diversity of housing types, multifamily, single family, townhomes, uh, which makes it um, uh, affordable for different income levels and people in different stages of life to be able to live in the same neighborhood. Uh, I know that we will have to look at changing our land use policies and, 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 and maybe expanding some of our zoning uh, codes and policies to accommodate that or to, to address that concept here in Nashville. But I don't think it's a all a one size fits all 
uh, solution as well. My area, I represent District 3, which is north of town, uh, Whites Creek, Goodlessville, Madison, Parkwood area. A lot of my district is suburban communities. We don't have sidewalks in our in our neighborhoods. Uh, we have limited transit availability in our neighborhoods. So focusing on building that housing affordability and, and, and uh, density on our corridors where we do have limited sidewalks and, and transit is, is uh, the first step. And then, as I said, investing in infrastructure. I mean, some of our suburban areas have limited sewer uh, lines and, and water runoff uh, systems. So uh, there's a lot of work and investment that needs to be done in our neighborhoods before we can just jump into um, changing uh, just density everywhere. Um, so I think it, it'll be a, a stage, multi-stage, a phase rather, multi-phase approach where we do have those uh, infrastructures in place where we can go on and do that, particularly in our urban core, which is where a lot of these cities are starting that compact development uh, concept. And then as we make more investment, it gradually builds out into our more urban, uh, suburban rather, uh, communities. Let me say... I think I heard you say one point you're in favor of re- eliminating lot size minimums. Um, I'm not trying well, to. Well, give me an example. Well, like in, over here in East Nashville, I've helped some people get authority to build a DADU, okay. detached okay. accessory dwelling yes. unit. Yes, okay. I said, well, you know, the first hurdle you got to clear is, well, it's got to have a minimum lot size of X. Yes. Wh- whatever that number yes. is. And like, no, yes. we don't need a minimum lot size. That vacant land could be used to house another human. So that's inherently Okay, I good. agree with you there then. Yes, okay. in that case, I do agree with you. I do. Um, in fact, I just had helped a, a resident in a suburban area get a variance so that he could give, put a dad do behind his house. At first, we had to change the zoning because he was in. RS residential single family zoning. However, his his house is right next to a major corridor, and so um, through community support, which the community supported rezoning his property in order to allow the dad do in the first place, and then once he got we got that done, ran into the lot size issue. So I agree. Yeah, we we do that. Lot size is a huge barrier that. Uh, you know, if, if if we agree or support the idea of doing the dadu, how does the lot size then matter? I'm yeah, not sure. I, I would hope that somewhere down the road, other jurisdictions call it an ADU. We call it a DADU mm-hmm. here, mm-hmm. dadu. I think that should be legal across the board, regardless of your lot size or where it is. If it's going to house another human, it's inherently good because we have a housing affordability crisis. Again, particularly in the urban core because... That was my next question. Yes. Yep. Okay. How much of District 3 is inside the UZO versus outside? Um, I would say about 60%. And so there is a lot of um, opportunity there. And, and I will say that has changed actually over time. And that's where I go back to the importance of reviewing and updating Nashville next because when that was developed 15 years or 10 years ago now in 2015 almost 10 years ago well it was approved in 2015 it was actually started getting developed in 2013 so we are at 10 years now where it was began to be developed but our communities have changed since then to where 
at that time, some areas that were considered rural are now suburban, and the same thing with yep. areas that were considered suburban or, or rural. Rural were suburban, and suburban were urban. Well, anyway, we need to change that. We need to look at how our areas have changed and uh, update update those land use policies uh, based on that. So, um, to, so to that point, I think that there is a lot of opportunity in our urban zoning areas uh, to um, start to begin that content, con- compact development concept, but that's where it should start. It, and it can't be all over the board. It, it sounds like we have a fairly large tool. Ch- I'm going to use a really bad metaphor here. Uh, it sounds like we have a, a fairly large toolbox of different tools that we can use to approach different issues in different areas of the, of the county that have different problems and that we can use those different tools in different ways. Uh, there's obviously a few very loud, outspoken people on the com- on, on the Metro Council about the housing crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sitting across from, we're sitting across from a very loud, outspoken housing crisis former council member over here, Mr. Jamie Holland. F you, um, Braden. Yeah. Uh, do you get a, what, what is, I know it's only been a couple of meetings and I know it's a new body. There's been a lot of chatter about what this body will or won't do, but I just, do you get a sense, do you, do you get a sense that the body, which tool is used in which district and which neighborhood? We, we, that's, tactical right strategically do you view do you feel that the body do you get a sense that the body's aligned on on this issue um I, I don't know that it is a consensus on that issue I know uh you know most of the council members who sit around me are have similar areas like I do and so they have those same concerns that I do as far as lack of infrastructure to support the kind of density that is being suggested by removing single-family zoning codes and that type of thing. We, we, we have concerns about that. At the same time, we recognize the need for more housing uh, options and more housing stock, for lack of a better word, in our, in our city. So trying to find that balance, I think, is where a lot of the council members near where I sit stand, but then, then you have the other council members who are in the more urban areas, who are in the Na- East Nashville, downtown core, even South Nashville, who are pushing for more of that. But again, they don't have the issues that we have. Right. And so there's a, a, a push and pull. I don't know that there's a consensus. I think the, the ones who are in the urban communities hear us and understand our concerns. And, and like, just like we hear them and understand the needs there. Uh, but also, I want to make sure as a planning chair that I promote good planning and community engagement. And in my opinion, and in my four years as a first-termer, have learned that that's where, that's, that's key to getting that balance of getting more housing and maintaining quality of life, which is a tight dance that we have to do. And I think it will take input from all those stakeholders in order to get there. What I don't want to see happen is, is that we change these zoning laws, change these policies, put all of this density in areas and and we get the same thing that we've been getting that we got in east nashville and south nashville and now in west nashville in the nations where we have a lot of density but it hasn't helped it with any affordable housing in fact the housing costs have gone up you've got overdevelopment and gentrification and and in some instances could lead to concentrated poverty as we're looking at doing 
housing projects in, in some areas now. So I, I don't think we had the proper planning and strategy in place before we moved so fast to saturate and, di- and high-density areas in those areas. And so I don't want to see that happen in North. I, I'd like to see it planned better um, and so that we can be sure that we don't get the same result that we've got in those other areas. The the point I'd like to make on transit, like we've dropped the ball there. A common theme keeps coming up that, hey, you know, there's consensus building around density on the pipes. Well, if we don't have transit, what are we doing? Well, we're making traffic worse. And so while I support density on the corridors, yes, I support it everywhere, uh, not just the corridors. Like commercial around it. Give you an example. Right down the road here at 10th and Fatherland on the other corner. It's in a historic zoning overlay. Also known as exclusionary housing. Stay out of here if you don't have the big bucks. Mm -hmm. And there was a project that was going to be three stories on a pretty major corridor. 10th right here. It's a pretty big corridor. It's Mm -hmm. two lanes and a turning lane for most of of the way. It was going to be three stories. Well, the neighbors raised hell. Oh, my God, three stories. That's awful. Armageddon. One more than their house. Armageddon. One, one more. That's the end of the world. And so now that historic zoning, they killed that project. And so now, by right, they can build two stories and they can be short-term rentals. Mm-hmm. It's like that, that story has that's re- the that, fit in the purpose that's and that story has repeated itself mm-hmm. in a lot of different mm-hmm. places, you know, exactly. particularly in areas that have, you know, historic zoning overlays. Mm-hmm. Hopefully there's a movement, not for you, but mm-hmm. to eliminate historic zoning mm-hmm. anymore. But to the point about I don't think anybody wants to get rid of single family zoning, mm-hmm. at least in this town. Okay. I don't think that's a politically possible deal. But I would tell the people that live in the suburban area and the rural areas, hey, get on our team. We're just talking about increasing density on a massive scale inside the UZO. Mm-hmm. We're not, mm-hmm. we're not, we're not coming to you. I think that would be supportive. And there does need to be a boundary of, of, of what the urban density uh, compact development would be. It, it does need to be a boundary as to what area um, that would be. And it needs to be based on data and infrastructure and transit and those things that we've been talking about and there's one thing i would ask that you know is there something to be thought about that can be ministerially approved like you just talked about a guy that he needed a variance to build a dad mm-hmm. well and he also needed a, a lot size mm-hmm. variance well that takes you know minimum six weeks to get on an agenda at a bza what what can we do in the zoning reform to make more of these ministerial, i.e. doesn't have to go to some public hearing, doesn't have to send letters mm-hmm. to a thousand feet surrounding the property and those kinds of things? Well, I agree with you. I, th- I think the, the, the minimum uh, limit lot size for a DADU, if it's in the correct zoning, is just overkill. Uh, yeah, I mean, because like I said before, if, if there's support for the DADU in that for that land use in that area, then having the lot size minimum is mute in, in my opinion. I mean, yeah. you're going to have two single family 
dwellings, whether how close they are, I don't know how, how, who that matters for. I think a lot of the concerns that I hear when we're talking about multi-dwelling units on a single family lot, what I hear is where the cars are going, where are the cars going to go? Uh, we don't have sidewalks. Where are the people going to go? I, I like the idea of contact compact development and making more walkable neighborhoods because that that's one of the purposes when you have the infrastructure in place having more mass transit that's one of the purposes of, of that kind of development but when you don't have that in the in a suburban area how do you supplement that or how do you accommodate that that is some you know I'm interested and I'm doing research on this now because it is something that is at the forefront uh, for our, our city and many of our uh, lawmakers. And so um, how, how do you um, balance that where you may not have the um, infrastructure in place and, and you're trying to move that into more, more suburban communities? But I do agree with you in keeping it in the urban core where you do have those, um, those amenities and those things, making it less taking away those barriers, making it less cumbersome, making it less expensive. The gentleman that I talked about, his wife passed away and he's trying to figure out, he's retired and he's trying to figure out not only how to help with housing, but how to get income so he can stay in his primary residence. Right. And that dad do provides him that opportunity. Well, and you, you, you explained it the way you can explain it and message it to the people of districts like yours, which is like, look, this urban sprawl is coming. And if it's it, like, like you said, it, it was rural before now right. it's suburban, right. it was suburban before now it's urban, right. it's going to keep coming if we don't do something, we don't do something about it. So, and I do have a transit question about it, but I do want to add that when you get into those places that are more walkable, cause you mentioned the cars, mm-hmm. I don't think people fully realize like economic development goes up, crime goes down. Uh, like you get parks and walkability and transit into these places and the entire neighborhood becomes more efficient mm-hmm. and better for the people who live there in general. Right. That was just a comment. <laughs> That's all Good that. comment. That's I agree. All that. That's all that was. Um, can I throw a really wild sort of long scope transit question at you f- just real fast here? Sure. H- how do we get a transit referendum on the ballot in November of 2024 we as have, a city? How do we do that? We have to do it regionally. I, I, I don't think we'll get it or get the support if we just focus on Nashville local. We have to, it has to be a state initiative. It has to be a regional initiative where we're looking at mass transit coming from our surrounding counties into Nashville. In my opinion, that's the only way that I see it get done. I think that's why the referendum that we had in 2017, I think it was, failed because... 2018. 2018, because the focus was downtown and transit in mass transit in the downtown area that's that's not where we need we needed to come from Antioch from Smyrna from Rutherford County from Clarksville Montgomery County Wilson County we needed to come from the outside in and so if we focus on that and make it a regional uh, project which is going to involve the state I think we can get there all right I'm optimistic about that what can regular old voters do about that because I don't. Th- I think one of the ways it passes, hypothetically, I, I'm, this is a, a blank sheet of paper here that I have in my head, right? There's no details, there's no budget, there's no funding, there's none of that. But I think you need to have a presidential election hmm. for the people to get out and vote for it. Mm-hmm. But you can't have housing without the transit. You can't have transit without the housing. So how do we get dedicated funding? Mm-hmm. What, what can folks do 
in general? What, what's your advice to them, I guess? Well, yeah, that's a good question because nobody wants their taxes raised. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, you're right. How do we, uh, how do we dedicate funding as we're, as our city is growing and, and for example, we're looking at redeveloping the East bank and looking at potential tax sales tax and, and other property tax revenues that will come in from that. How do we look at uh, designating that to a transit fund? I know uh, it, when we were talking about the Titan stadium, one of the um, resol- one of the amendments that I had put forward would have designated part of that revenue to transportation, to transit. There wasn't a lot of support for that. The, 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 the consensus was it needed to go into the general fund and then let the future council members or whoever decide where it needs to go. And ultimately, I supported that. But I think we do need to have a designated revenue stream or start one at least so that once we get the state and our surrounding counties on board, we, we're, we're, we have a start. We have something that we can have leverage to say we're, we're here. Now, what can you all put into this? I think it'll help maybe even repair some relations with the state. We'll see. And then maybe that's something that needs to be on the agenda for the next governor's race. But um, we got to start somewhere. We've got to start somewhere. I, I got an idea. Our hotel motel tax is 1% of that's dedicated to the Barnes Affordable Housing Trust Fund. And that comes by virtue of state enabling legislation that the council opted into. Go get it. Go take another one percent, one percent away from the CVC. We're on the way. That sounds good to me. Yeah, that, look sounds at that. We just did it. Step, we just did the whole step, thing. Step one. <laughs> maybe go get two, two percent. Oh 2%. yeah. Okay. Does that maybe does, even add another percent? Does that include widening the roads too? Does that help with that? Baby steps. Okay. All right. <laughs> get me a dedicated bus lane first. I, I look. I'm on board with the process here. It's it's and, you more, get, and more crosstown routes. We just got a crosstown yeah. route in in my district. I'm excited about Route right, 79. Route 79. Yes, there you route go. 79. Yeah, you don't have to come all the way down into town. That's right. to, there you go. That's right. And and what are the, what's been the response? I think it's growing. I mean, it was slow because it started right after the pandemic, and then and people were getting used to it, and, and schools were coming back online, and so the the uh, ridership is growing. Uh, there's a lot of positive response to it. I, I see a gentleman uh, in my neighborhood who walks to the he walks to the bus stop to go to work, and prior to that bus route, he would have to walk down Dickerson Road probably a mile and a half to get to the bus stop. Now because of that crosstown route, he just walks up a few blocks to Dickerson Road and can take the bus to the Walmart uh, center where he transfers to take the bus where he knows needs to go. I'm also excited about hopefully uh, getting funding for a new transit center, a neighborhood transit center in that uh, Dickerson Road skyline uh, area. In fact, that's supposed to be the, the next planned uh, neighborhood transit center after the one in Antioch. So um, I think the, 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 the movement is there. The interest is there. It's just getting the funding. <laughs> which is always which is always an issue well would walmart and lowe's let us build some housing out there on them parking lots <laughs> well there is housing actually there's an affordable mdha project right next to the lowe's uh the highland preserve about 300 units uh that was built and and opened in 2001 
And so there, there is already affordable housing there. We have a couple of other affordable housing projects on that corridor down, coming down the pike. I know there's a lot of interest for the community for services because that's another thing that we don't have in our suburban area. We don't have sit-down restaurants, limited grocery stores. We don't have a coffee shop, those kind of things. And so that Walmart, Skyline, Commons area, when it was built in around 2006, 2007 era, it was supposed to be that. It was supposed to be our service center with restaurants, but then, of course, the recession of 08 happened, and that ruined all those plans. But as we get back into uh, economic stability, I'm hopeful to see more service, retail and commercial in that plaza to complement the residential that's coming around it. Well, I, I was going to ask, what is it that people in other areas of the city need to know about a district like yours? But it sounds like you just sort of explained some of it. So is there anything else about District 3, District three maybe other districts like it, that people that are in the urban core or in South Nashville or in Bellevue or whatever that just don't, like that they don't understand the issues that, 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 are, that people are dealing with? I think that's it. Those are the most important. It, uh, infrastructure, sidewalks. Uh, water uh, waste runoff, uh, sewer issues. We we need more uh, infrastructure support, transit. We need more accessibility to uh, areas across town without having to go downtown all the time. And then commercial and retail services, of course, housing as well. But in addition to those, those are the other three things, infrastructure, transit, and then commercial and retail services so that we don't have to go farther out in the suburbs to Rivergate, for example, to get a, a sit-down meal, for example. Uh, so those are the concerns that I've heard uh, even before being elected. I was a neighborhood association president, served on several metro boards before being elected. This is something that I've heard almost all the 30 years that I've been living in that community. Uh, Jennifer, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming in. Congrats on the chair. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, special thanks to Jennifer Gamble for coming on the show with us. We do appreciate her time uh, to make the effort to come visit with us. We do appreciate it. All right, Jamie, let me, I asked you two weeks ago on the show. I said, do you think that Jennifer Gamble is going to be, where does she stand on the Holland track, which is build more motherfucking housing, I believe is the direct quote. Um, after that conversation. I stand by that quote. Where do you think she falls? Where do you think the, her role as chair where do you think the committee's going to fall? Like, how, how do you think it shakes out now that you've had a chance to talk with her? Well, I'm optimistic that inside the UZO, the Holland way <laughs> will be the way. So it's we're going to steal some money from the hotel motel tax for some transit. And then we're going to, what are we going to do away with? We're not stealing it. <laughs> Sorry. It's fucking tax revenue. You know what I mean. We're going to redirect it. Okay, fine. Out of the CVC. Over here for transit. And then what are we going to do? We're going to get rid of lot size minimums. Lot size minimums. There we go. Fuck yeah. Let's go. That's that's two tools in the, in the, in the chest there that I think you can get. You can get some work done with those. And see. And then next we'll get rid of floor area ratios. Make dadus legal everywhere. Yep. Okay. Yep. All right. So we're getting there. Transit referendum. 2024. Miami people. Housing We're going to have to show up to a bunch of fucking meetings. On the Nashville Next plan with our little sticky notes. 
<laughs> we're gonna have to flood them every God. fucking one of them God, you like every pissing, meeting you like pissing people off it's great um okay uh do you as the speaker's ship turns my god like th- so this is one of the things that i've said to you multiple times on this show that there's a false equivalency between the left extreme hive and the right extreme hive i'd like to point to exhibit one your honor mr mike johnson because he is the embodiment of the extreme right hive on the internet, and he is the third most powerful man in the country. Most powerful person, excuse me, in the country. There, there is no one that, that is on the left in this extreme thing that you envision that happens on Twitter that is anywhere close to the speakership of the House here's of Representatives. What, here, here's, it, that is the difference between the two. It is a false equivalency. We need... An age limit and a term limit on members of Congress. Exhibit A, Mike Johnson is the speaker. Who? How did he become the speaker? No one's even heard of this guy. And I would submit to everyone that the reason he's a speaker, because those old bastards in the House Republican Caucus got tired of voting for a speaker. Uh, No, I think it's because he's fucking crazy enough that they all could get on board. He's a goddamn insurrectionist. Sodomy is a insurrectionist. Sodomy is a crime. It's a crime. Covenant marriage. Let's go back to that. Sounds great. I mean, the things this guy has said are off. They're off. Like even (laughs) they make make old Marge seem pretty tame. When he was twenty-five and adopted the fourteen-year-old black child, has anyone heard from that? I I actually don't know. That now adult. You're asking. Yeah. You're asking I, I the mean, right I, question I, of the wrong person. I, I'm sure he regrets all this newfound attention he's getting as a result of that. But ultimately, oh, it's going to come out. But like, God damn, what the fuck's going on? Terrible. I'm I'm not suggesting that there isn't an elected Democrat out there protesting the Middle East right now. I understand, but the the, the fringe of the two conversations that you complain about one of them is just a conversation on twitter and the other one is the speaker of the fucking house that is the difference between the two i just i want to point that out equally crazy ideas i'm not disagreeing with you on that one somehow one of them is now the third most powerful person in the country he's never been in a competitive election before because of gerrymandering has he passed a bill at any point now that uh, I don't know because I'm still learning about who he is. Will he pass a bill? <laughs> with, I, with four I, votes to spare, will he pass a bill? Five. Five votes to spare? That, that remains to be seen, but the president is already threatening veto if they don't include other forms of aid to civilians in the Middle East and uh, just make it a straight Israeli defense support bill. Are you suggesting that spending $14 billion on foreign defense and in an effort to cut spending, adding $12 billion because you're taking that $14 billion from the IRS, which, of course, you know, is how we make sure we get enough taxes and revenue in our government. Are you suggesting that that's counterintuitive? <laughs> I'm making no suggestion. It's just, you know, D-C. D-O-A. Until we can get members of Congress to stop gambling in the stock market <laughs> the way i gamble in the stock market that, that one we can all agree on different gamble 
different risk of loss. And we can all agree. Until we can stop we can that. Like, <laughs> Congress is not going to get the matter. A lot of and we got motherfuckers up there trading inside information There's a and lot. shorting the economy. I'm su- that should be against the law, too. You can't short the United States economy. I am surprised that so many senators and House of Representative members moved everything into health care right around the spring of 2020. <laughs> and now moving into the defense contractors. I'm shocked. I'm shocked. <laughs> it's not even called Blackwater anymore. Lockheed Martin stock going up all right is that it are we done thank you jennifer for coming in and hanging out with us we do appreciate it uh, i think there's a couple of really good nuggets in there for sure uh, about housing that is for sure now let's get a transit referendum on the ballot in 2024 for jamie holland please rate review subscribe i am braden gall thanks for listening we'll talk to you next week